Well, go ahead, your, take your Bibles this morning and turn to Philemon. Turn to the book of Philemon. We're here in this letter. Uh, we've been here for several weeks now. Um, and uh, we're actually going to read the entire letter again this morning. Uh, this will be the last week. Next week is Palm Sunday and then Resurrection Sunday. Um, if you're a child and you are K through 5, Miss Brianna is standing in the back and she'd be happy to take you with her. Um, and if you don't have a copy of words, close to Brianna is a table with copies of God's Word, and uh, you are free to go ahead and grab one of those this morning. So we're going to read this text together, Philemon 1 through 25, just 25 verses, doesn't even warrant two chapters, and this is where we've been for the previous four weeks. We'll conclude here today. I'll read this for us. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become more effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart." I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than as a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in flesh and in the Lord." So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So again, in our time here in this text, we've seen a handful of things going on. The story that kind of lies behind this, this letter that Paul writes to his brother Philemon, is that Philemon is a wealthy Christian who lives in Colossae. He hosts the church in his home. We're familiar with this story by now after five weeks. But Onesimus is his slave, being wealthy. He has slaves. He's a slave owner. And so he has these slaves or bondservants, as the text calls them. Uh, and Onesimus was an unhappy bondservant, an unhappy slave. Maybe he didn't like the extra work that was going into, into his day-to-day, cleaning up after a church that was hosted in his home. 
or maybe he didn't like hearing about the freedom that they all had in Christ, so he runs away. He makes his way to Rome, 1,200 miles away, and spends time there trying to blend in, disappearing, uh, and uh, appearing to be a free man. But God had a different plan. Uh, Onesimus meets the Apostle Paul, who is imprisoned in Rome. Paul had a, pre- a previous relationship with Philemon, who he's writing to. Uh, in Ephesus, about seven years earlier, Philemon uh, was saved through Paul's gospel ministry there. And so Philemon has this standing relationship, and so they come together somehow through a peculiar providence, and it, Onesimus meets Paul in this prison cell in Rome, 1,200 miles away from where his master lives. Paul obviously shares the gospel with Onesimus, and Onesimus believes, and he realizes that he has to go back to Colossae. So he makes his way back to Colossae, carrying this letter, 1,200 miles, carrying this letter, 1,200 miles, and uh, makes his way back uh, to his master, Philemon. Travels back with Tychicus, makes a stop in Ephesus on the way before they arrive in Colossae. And Philemon then receives his bondservant back, but more as a bondservant, but you see in verse 16, as a beloved brother. And so one of the reasons I've enjoyed spending time in this text, one of the reasons that this has been, I think, beneficial, is because oftentimes when we think about the Apostle Paul, we think about him at the 30,000-foot level. There's, he's talking up here, very high-minded, lots of theological truth, and we come to his work in Scripture, and we say, what is going on here? Uh, oftentimes we think to ourselves, we, we're trying to figure out exactly what he means by this or that. But the story that lies behind this text in particular is one that is deeply personal, it's pretty messy, it's pretty gross, and it makes us feel a little bit less than, I mean, it has a great ending, but it makes us feel a little bit, if we put ourselves in the position of either Philemon or Onesimus, in this strained, tense relationship that has culminated both in Onesimus stealing and running away from Philemon's home, uh, that's a a pretty tough place to be in. And so we see this really human side of Paul in his, in his uh, admonishing and his, uh, his appealing to Philemon uh, on Onesimus' behalf. He's, uh, in this letter, he's still up here somewhere in this idea of theological and doctrinal thought, but uh, instead of dropping all of these atom bombs, he appeals to the heart. Right? He comes to Philemon's heart and appeals there in the messy stuff of life what Philemon has to deal with and think through and process as it pertains to his relationship with or broken relationship with Onesimus. And so there's much here for us to learn from Paul. And I think just by way of introduction, in this text, um, we're going to center our time on the right in the middle of his letter in verse 12 where he says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Paul is sending Onesimus back to, or back to Philemon, again, no longer as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother. He's sending him back to him. He's sending what he says, my, my very heart. And so when we see that Paul is willing to get down into the mess of life and to deal with these one-on-one situations, even by way of letter, uh, with Onesimus and Philemon, we see clearly that there's no such thing as a 30,000-foot Christian. Right? Sometimes Paul is up here in the stratosphere talking with us about these major, uh, major th- uh, uh, theological truths, 
and applying them, but he's not afraid to also get down into the trenches and to deal with the garbage, the messy stuff of life. And so when I say there's no such thing as a 30,000-foot Christian, uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, Billy Graham, we all know that name, Billy Graham died just a few weeks ago. And some people, even in, in the, in the, as a result of the things that uh, his life was about, accused him, or some people step out and say things like, well, he spoke to big crowds regularly. He had the ears of president, presidents. What are the things that he did regularly? How did God choose to impact uh, lives, like simple relationship and lives, and not just up at this 30,000-foot level speaking gospel, uh, but being removed largely from the people? And the reality is that wasn't Billy Graham's story or reality at all. And in an interview, in a, actually in a different, two or three different places that I read post his death, uh, he, was, he was asked questions pertaining to when he would meet with presidents. And they would ask him questions like, what kind of policies or legislation did you impact uh, when you met with all of these presidents over the course of the last 40 or 50 years? And Graham would reply, and this is a paraphrase, Graham would reply, we, didn't, we never talked about those things. He said, we would get together, we would talk about the president's spiritual state, I would share the gospel with him, and we'd pray together. That was the agenda for Billy Graham when he came in, when he walked into the Oval Office or wherever he met the president. He didn't use his influence, and he had mighty influence, he didn't use his influence for political gain or for earthly matters in general, but for eternal matters. And when he found himself in a room with a leader of the free world, the man sitting across from him wasn't a person to be leveraged for gain, but was a person who needed to hear, respond to, and apply the gospel. And we, as a local church, oftentimes get this wrong. We oftentimes get this wrong. We float up in the stratosphere, because this is where the easy, this is, this is kind of where it gets easy. We'll talk about that in a minute. But where the easy side of the balance is to oftentimes float up in the stratosphere. We study the Bible. We get together with people who are like-minded or like us. We spend time with them. But there is sort of a line that each of us have that if we descend below that line, it starts to get really uncomfortable for us. It's easy, again, to shoot the breeze about the weather, no pun intended. But once we get below that line and we start talking about the messy stuff and the difficulties of life and begin applying the gospel, sometimes it becomes pretty difficult for us. When there's a hint of turbulence, when we descend, when we start to descend, we head back up to the place where we think, or the, the height where we think that we will be, will be safe. What it boils down to is that we as people like safe and sanitary. We like safe and sanitary. I like clean things. I do. I don't like messes. I like organization. I like clean lines. I like simple, modern design. Just give me simple lines, right? Beautiful. But the reality is the life that we live and the place that we engage is rarely less than messy. It's rarely less than messy. And you, if you've been with us for any amount of time here at Buffalo City Church, you know that this is part of what we talk about. It's rarely less than messy. And the reason that's true, the reason that's true and the reason that we can embrace that and not just head back up to 30,000 feet every time we feel a little bit uncomfortable, is because the, the focal point and the hinge of what we believe falls on a bloodstained cross. That's mess. It's a symbol of execution. It's a symbol of dying to self. 
It's a symbol of our understanding that the man in whom we place our trust was, was murdered while his enemy spit on him. Safe and sanitary, therefore, safe and sanitary becomes anti-gospel. Safe and sanitary becomes anti-gospel. We as Christians need to get down from the 30,000 foot level and into the mess. Because that's what Paul does. And he, he gives us this example here. And this will begin to make sense. This will come into clear view as we consider verse 12 in just a moment. But we need to figure this out just as Paul did. Onesimus' situation was nothing short of messy. Paul got down. He built a relationship with a runaway slave, which would have been problematic. That would have been problematic Someone who fell into a significantly different socioeconomic class than Paul himself built, built a relationship with him. And in a prison cell, from a, from a prison cell, proclaimed the gospel without shame. And because we're so drawn to safe and sanitary though, right? It's easy to slip into this mindset. Because instead of focusing on people and how the gospel impacts people's lives, what we tend to do is we tend to just move our minds to something else, something safe and sanitary in our minds, and then that becomes what we pursue. Again, we've talked about what is my vision of the good life? What does that look like? I spend a lot more time thinking about how I can be comfortable than I do thinking about how I can minister the gospel to people who are hurting and in a broken place. That's the reality. I'm a myopic, self-focused sinner in need of grace. And but the gospel changes that vision again, right? And this is why the gospel becomes our focal point. This is why the gospel stay, must stay central to everything that we do as a, as a local church. From safe and sanitary to dangerous and messy. Let me give you one more example of this. One of my favorite missionaries in church history, his name is Adoniram Judson. Adoniram, great name. Um, he was a man who, out of the gate, knew that the gospel called him to dangerous and, and messy. He, like Paul, didn't let that stop him, though. He was called to take the gospel to Burma, and as a young man, made preparations to, to, to go to Burma, to make his way to Burma. And so that's what he did. So he made his way to India, but before he did, and then finally to Burma in 1813, he had a love interest. He wanted to get married. 1811. He, married, or he, he uh, meets this woman. Her name is Anne Hazeltine. And like any quality young man, fathers, you'll appreciate this, any quality young man, he goes to her father and asks for her hand in marriage. But as he's asking, he writes him a letter, and as he's, as he's asking his daughter for her hand in marriage, Listen to how he embraces the danger of responding to the gospel. Fathers, this should probably stir something in you. I have now to ask whether you can consent in part with your, uh, to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of the missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean to the fatal influences of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? 
Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means for eternal woe and despair? If I received that letter as a father, I would look at it and say, dude, you are insane. Absolutely, no, I, maybe. I, I would hope that my response would be, my, my earthly response would be, like, you are out of your mind, kid. But the reality is, in, in, in my heart, this is such a dedication to the gospel. And now the reality is, in 1811, once you go to India, once you get on that boat, it's probably, you're probably not coming back. And our world is a little bit different. But even our children, right? The mess of life. Are we prepared to suffer the loss of all things for the sake of knowing Christ? Anne Hazeltine, then Judson, died from disease in 1826 in Burma. And she did not see her earthly father in this life again. And now, again, we've been conditioned to view that as tragic. We've been conditioned to view that as tragic. But even as Paul writes to Philemon here, that's not tragic, it's triumphant. It's a call on every Christian, every Christ follower, no exceptions, to die to self, to get into the mess and proclaim the gospel. And that's what Adoniram and Ann Judson did at the risk of their own life. They proclaimed the gospel in a foreign place. And so we see this radical call that the gospel makes on our lives. 30,000 foot Christian is not following Christ. And so there's another side of this coin, right? There's another side of this coin that is equally as dangerous. I think a lot of Christians that never get to studying their Bible or could care less about doctrinal and theological matters, I think that that is equally an equally dangerous pitfall. Many Christian circles say that theological truth or doctrine aren't really that relevant, but that's simply not true. It's sort of like saying I'm a dentist, but understanding teeth just don't really matter. Or I'm an auto mechanic, but the internal combustion engine is a complete mystery to me. You can get a lot of grease on your hands, but never do anything. In the same way as dentists seek to understand teeth and auto mechanics seek to understand the inner working of cars, so followers of Jesus seek to know their God. And this is in large part the relationship that has been restored with God. We get to do this. We don't have to do it. We get to do it. We as new creatures have the ability and the desire to know God. We've been given the, we've been given the way to do that. And it's right here. It's found in God's word. It's found in scripture. And sure, theological, doctrinal thought, those things can be purely intellectual, but a heart that is seeking after God will engage theologically and doctrinally. Theology is, this is simple. This is, we hear the word theology and we get kind of, we squirm a little bit. Theology is, just means the study of God. Theos is God. Ology is study. If you're having a thought about God, you're doing theology. That's the reality. You don't have to be employed by a seminary to do theology. You can do it by studying your Bible. And doctrine is just a concise statement about what we believe regarding a particular issue. 
And so what do we, where do we go for what we believe about particular issues? We go to our authoritative source. Study your Bible, you're engaging in doctrine. This is just the reality. We can have really bad doctrine and really bad theology. We strive to know our God, though. And we strive to do that well. And so the heart that is seeking after God and is, is engaging theologically and doctrinally, we will grow in love for God because we're deepening in our relationship with him. That's what those two things are about. That's why we have those two things. That's why we have a 30,000-foot level. There's a balance here. There's two sides to this coin. We will grow in love for God because we're deepening in our relationship with him when we engage in this way. When we think about our relationship with our best friend or maybe our spouse, if you ignore that person, do you grow in relationship with them? No, absolutely not. I love what Jen Wilkins says. This applies to both God and to our earthly relationships. The heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. Can your heart love something that your mind doesn't know? Absolutely not. And so as, as we know God through his word, our love for him will grow. His desires will become our desires. And we will begin to love others the way that he loves them. And getting to the 30,000 foot level and studying your Bible inevitably leads you to get down in the dangerous and the messy. Getting up high, getting down low. Because all that we have is in Christ. The reality, too, is when we consider who God is for us in Christ Jesus, we realize, we begin to realize that, that knowing him and getting into the dangerous and messy really don't have that much of a separation. And all that we have can never be taken from us. And that compels us to get down in the dangerous and messy. John 10, 27 through 29. Jesus says this to his disciples. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him glory. The reason we stay at 30,000 feet is because we still think we have something to lose here on earth. The reason we like in safe and sanitary is because we think something can be taken from us. But Paul tells the Colossians that their life is Christ, is Christ, and it's hidden with him in God. And what Paul means is that no one can take your life. It's with Jesus. He ascended into heaven. He's reigning there. Your life is with him and is him. He defeated the final enemy, death, so that what could you possibly lose here on earth? Your house burns down. The insurance company doesn't pay. What could you possibly lose? You get laid off from your job. No severance. What could you possibly lose? Friends, what can you possibly lose? Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hand. That comes out of Jesus' mouth directly. What can you possibly lose? 
So the correct response to all of this is not to say, which many Christians do in our culture, all the way back to Paul, and they say, yeah, what can snatch me out of the Father's hand? I'll do whatever I want. Paul addresses this in Romans 6.15. He says, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Paul is saying grace, the free gift of salvation, does not enable you to indulge in sin. But he goes on in 6.22 to say, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become enslaved to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. The understanding that you belong to God leads to becoming more like Jesus, being joyfully obedient to your heavenly Father. And Paul talks about it the same, very same way. We looked at this text a couple weeks ago. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. So the correct response to an understanding, the correct response to an understanding that your life is secure in Christ is to, through love, serve one another. And that's where it all gets dangerous and messy. So, ask the question, what does this have to do with Philemon and Paul and Onesimus? What does this have to do? Again, verse 12 is where we want to focus our time. He, Paul says, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And this verse stands at the center of Paul's appeal to Philemon, not only because it's verse 12 of 25 verses, but because it is central to the gospel uh, picture that Paul is painting for us. The four things that have come before as we've studied this book together, the four things that come before is that the gospel refreshes us. The gospel takes us from useless and makes us useful. That the gospel frees us from slavery to sin. And we saw last week that the gospel pays our debts. Our debts are canceled in Christ. And the gospel does all of these things. The gospel refreshes us because it reminds us of God's amazing love for us in Christ. And God sent his son to die for you so that you would not die but live with him for eternity. That refreshes our heart. The gospel makes us useful by giving us the ability to selflessly love one another. Jesus shows us humility and gives us the power to be humble. The gospel frees us through Jesus' substitutionary death on our account and breaks the bonds of slavery to sin and death. Jesus was perfectly sinless, free to obey his Father entirely, but paid for our freedom with his blood. The gospel cancels our debt through the payment made by Jesus on the cross. Friends, our debt is forgiven in Christ, and now we are free to forgive in love. And yet, there is one more intersection here that verse 12 points out to us. He says it twice, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Sending is part of God's nature, and sending paints a picture of the gospel. Sending is purposeful action. God therefore sends with a mission. God sends us with a mission. Now I need to add a caveat here. I, I'm off script here, but I need to add a caveat here. Oftentimes when we start talking about mission or in other church contexts, we start talking about evangelism or we start talking about that sort of thing, sharing the gospel with other people, what we wind up doing is punching out because we believe then the pastor is about to wax eloquent on church growth strategy. 
The reality is what I'm not going to do right now is wax eloquent on church growth strategy. Our church growth strategy has one bullet point. It's the gospel. That's it. We don't grow if the gospel isn't proclaimed. Not just by me up here on a Sunday morning, but all of us by the way that we live and the way that we speak. Nothing happens. Nothing happens in this faith. We could, we could easily blow out this place with people. That's, that's not the hard part. The hard part is growing in our understanding of the truth of the gospel. And that comes with a lot of uncomfortable truths that make people squirm. That comes with a lot of things that, that make us feel like we're descending below that line where we still are comfortable. And so what we're not doing here when we start talking about mission, we're not talking about a guilt-ridden, a, a guilt-ridden uh, life that has to go out and say, I really have to share Jesus, but I don't quite know how to do that and this and that. And we start to feel, uh, we, start to, we, we sort of turn inward on ourselves and then it becomes about us anyway. So we're not going to do that. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you God's, I'm gonna, we're going to talk about God's nature and how it is that that intersects with what Paul says in verse 12, and then how then this becomes not something that we do, but again, as we talked about so frequently in the Sermon on the Mount, not something that we do, but something that we are. Something that we are. And so God's nature has this portion of it that we often ignore, his sending nature. God sends with purposeful action. He sends with a mission. So we see this, okay? We see this in God. We see this in the way that he sent his son to earth. So this initiates all of this action for us. I'm going to read this quote from Joe Thorne. He writes, The Father sent the Son to live, teach, work, and die, and rise again as the grounds for our salvation. That doesn't happen if the Father doesn't send the Son. And the mission of God is to bring his people back to himself. Right? That's the mission. That's God's mission. And so he sends his Son to accomplish or kickstart or begin that mission. He sends his Son. And then we have a second sending that occurs. We have the Father and the Son sending the Spirit. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. Joe Thorne again. The Holy Spirit would be sent into a world to bring conviction, continuing the work of redemption. The same Spirit will lead us into truth and give us the words to say as the mission of God. The Son accomplishes redemption for us. The Spirit awakens us to that reality that Jesus is the only way to be redeemed. Both vital components, right? And then, as part of our identity, Jesus sends us the church, to proclaim the good news, the gospel. Joe Thorne, one more time. The mission of God continues as Jesus sends his people into the world as a continuation of his mission. As Jesus was sent, so are we to be the agents of God's gospel. God has a mission. We are part of it as those who are sent to proclaim the good news. And so God has a mission to bring his people back to himself. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish the necessary redemption that we need. The Spirit makes alive the heart to receive the redemption. And we, the church, those who are alive in Christ, bear witness to the redemption we have in Christ. Let me say that again. That was a lot of words. Let me say that again. Jesus' death and resurrection accomplish the necessary redemption. 
The Spirit makes alive the heart to receive the redemption, and we, the church, those who are alive in Christ, bear witness to the redemption we have in Christ. And therefore, God is a missionary God. God is a sending God. And we, as image bearers, as those created in his image, are missionary people. This is part of our identity. This is not an optional part of the Christian life because in Christ we have the image of God restored upon us and a part of the Christian life is to be sent and to be on mission. Because the mission is not what we do, but it's who we are as image bearers. God has a mission. We, as those who are created as image, have a mission. But again, getting back to where we started this morning, this mission is dangerous and messy. It is not safe and sanitary. It is far from safe and sanitary. It is very, very messy. And so Paul says then to Philemon, when he sends Onesimus back to him, he says, I am sending you my very heart. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. And in large part, Paul wants to paint this picture when he tells Philemon that he's sending his very heart by sending him Onesimus. In sending someone who he says, again in verse 10, has become like a son to him. He's sending him back to fulfill his purpose. In the same way, God sent his son, Jesus, to earth to fulfill his purpose. Onesimus went back to Philemon, hoping to reconcile his broken relationship with his master. Jesus came to earth in order to reconcile not only one relationship, but the entire world to himself. The reconciliation was balancing our account something we were unable to do. It was to restore the relational harmony that was broken in the garden. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God is reconciling the world to himself. Sins are not counted against us. The us he's talking about, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5.19. Is it on the screen? Good. Okay. The us that he's talking about is Paul himself and the other apostles. The word apostle means sent. They were, first in, they were the first line of defense being sent and passed that along to those they discipled. Paul commands his protege, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 4.2 to proclaim the gospel Paul command, or so the apostles, the sent ones, received the gospel and passed along the message of reconciliation to all of us. So if you've been reconciled to God in Christ, you are sent by God to proclaim the gospel into the world. You cannot divorce those two thoughts. Those are not two separate ideas. If you have been reconciled, if you have been reconciled to God in Christ, you are sent by God to proclaim the gospel in all the world. If you are reconciled to God in Christ, you have been sent to proclaim the gospel in all of the world. We like compartmentalization. That's not a compartmentalized thought. We need to recognize that this is part of our identity. And we need to recognize that that means uncomfortability. It means a mess. 
It means less than safe and sanitary. So Paul sends Onesimus to reconcile with Philemon. God sends Jesus to reconcile with the, with the whole world. And while Onesimus' wrong was that was made reconciliation with his master necessary, it was our wrong that made reconciliation with God necessary. But God knew that there was nothing in us capable of initiating that reconciliation. So the work becomes his and it becomes his alone. He sent Jesus to take care of the entire process. Christ stands at the center of all of this. God's mission is all encompassing. It accomplishes everything that we could not. Everything that we could not. Right standing with God, the forgiveness of sins, renewal, transformation, a restoration of our inheritance. And so what's the response to all of this? What's the response? One, verse 12 tells us this, right? Just as Paul sends sends Onesimus back to Philemon, God sent Christ into the world to handle, to take care of all of this reconciliation business. But then on the tail end, we recognize that we also, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that we are sent into the world to make disciples. So the response to this is to recognize that we are sent. And when I say that we are sent, I very literally mean that we are sent. Are, to be. We are, that's our identity. We are sent. It's not an action, it's an identity. And this is where we depart now from the the church growth strategy model that says go out and bring people to church. We are sent. It's not an action. It's an identity. It's who we are in Christ. God is a missionary God. He has a mission. It's part of who God is, and we are his image bearers. That mission is to be ministers of reconciliation, to proclaim the gospel, and to make disciples. Following Jesus is not private or personal. Following Jesus is not private and personal. If you make following Jesus private and personal, you're not following Jesus. That's hard. That isn't news to you. But it's not safe and sanitary. Paul's life again, not safe and sanitary. The life of Jesus, not safe and sanitary. Paul was shipwrecked, he was flogged, he was beaten over and over again. Onesimus' action to go back to Philemon was not safe or sanitary. It was a big relational mess. If your Christianity has never been anything but safe and sanitary, you're not following Jesus. His mission resulted in his murder. As his follower, your mission stops at nothing short of that. It will be dangerous and it will be messy. Guaranteed. It will be dangerous. It will be messy. That is a guarantee because we only have one weapon in our arsenal as we are sent. And it's not political positions. The church has made it political positions, but it's not political positions. It's not apologetic arguments. The church has made it apologetic arguments, but it's not apologetic arguments. It's not temporary hopes. We've made it temporary hopes. It's not temporary hopes. It's not pithy platitudes. We've made it pithy platitudes. 
What it is is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus humbly came to earth, lived a perfect life that we could not live, died the death that he did not deserve for us and for our sin, so that in him, if we trust in him, we will not be put to shame, but he will take our sin if we turn from it and spend eternity with per- in perfect relationship with God and everlasting joy. That's the gospel. If you're asking yourself, what is the gospel? What is he talking about? How is it that he could say the gospel so many times and I have no idea what he's saying? This is the gospel, friends. The gospel means good news. It is the greatest news that is. Jesus, the righteous son of God, humbly came to earth, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve for our sins, and was raised on the third day so that if we turn from our sin and trust in him, we will spend eternity with God in perfect relationship with him and everlasting joy. That is the only weapon in our arsenal. We add to that, we've dulled our blade. And once we recognize that, once we recognize that that is the only weapon in our arsenal, we recognize that we are sent, and therefore we go. Jesus' commission to us is to go and make disciples of all nations. Again, Matthew 28, 18-20. To go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Again, not a suggestion. This is not a suggestion for us. This is our King graciously commanding us to follow Him and to be disciples who make disciples. This is our king graciously telling us, I have made you what you were intended to be. Before Christ, we were incapable of following this command. In Christ, we are totally capable. We are free. We get to do this, friends. We get to do this. We don't have to do this. Again, oftentimes we find we go to church and the pastor gets up and speaks a message about how we should be evangelizing to our our friends and neighbors, and we just feel guilty because we haven't done that in so long. But the reality is that that's not something that we do for the sake of doing or for the sake of church growth. It's something we do because it's who we are. Because it's, 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 it's woven into who Christ has made us to be or restored us to be. We don't need clever strategies We just need to realize that the only thing that we have in our arsenal is the gospel. And so when we recognize that we're sent, we go. We say, let me tell you about my king. And friends, this is the mission of the church, and this is the mission of Buffalo City Church, just like every other church that claims to be a church and actually is a church. We say it's to be disciples who make disciples, but that's not just us. It's every church that puts the gospel as the only thing in their arsenal. And that means that everyone in this room who's in Christ, if you trusted Jesus this morning, everyone in this room, all together, we are sent, we're armed with the gospel. And again, if you're like, I have no idea what that means, I would love to talk to you about that. Come talk with me. If you're thinking to yourself, I'm a pretty good person, or I've got a lot of things figured out, I work hard and I'm nice to people, Friends, that's not enough. Friends, that's not enough. Just as the Father sent the Son and the Father and Son sent the Spirit, now Jesus sends us. 
God, three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, God sending his very heart. Seeing, seen in Paul sending Onesimus, like he says in verse 12, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. Onesimus was seeking to restore the broken relationship between him and Philemon. And we see that in God's sending also. He is restoring the broken relationship between him and us. And then Jesus now sends us as the church to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim that the world can be right with God once again. Let me pray.